remain standing for our gospel lesson from John chapter 6. Listen carefully because this is the gospel of God. The Jews then complained about him, about Jesus, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear and to believe the good news in your word, especially in this passage from John 6. Give us grace to be hearers and then doers as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. Today we continue to make our way through the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. The bread of life discourse goes from verse 22 all the way to verse 59 where I ended. And today's sermon will just cover about seven verses, 
that I read, the first seven verses, 41 to 47. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, and we'll begin shortly in verse 41. And I also, while you're turning there, want to take a moment to encourage you to bring your Bibles to church and to have your Bible open so that you can follow along during the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. An open Bible is the best way to interact with a biblical sermon. It's also a good way to learn your Bible. And today, I know some of you can't. You're wrestling children and and it's not possible. So um, I'm not trying to impose anything on you if you can't do it. But an open Bible is a good way to interact with a sermon. And we'll be flipping around a good bit today in God's Word as we consider these verses. But we'll start in John 6, 41. Before, we, before that, we need to remember where we are in the story. All of John 6 covers two days of Jesus' ministry. On the first day, Jesus fed the 5,000. Then, later that night, Jesus walked on the Sea of Galilee out to His disciples on the boat during the storm. And together, after He got into the boat, they crossed the sea and came to the other side. And when the multitudes that Jesus had fed the day before woke up, they realized that Jesus wasn't there anymore. They realized that He had crossed the sea somehow. So they got into the boats that perhaps God provided by the storm, through the storm. And they got into the boats and they crossed themselves to look for Jesus. Their bellies were empty again. They wanted more food. They wanted another miracle. And when the multitude finally caught up with Jesus on the other side of the sea, they tried to pressure Him into doing a miracle. Probably, almost certainly, even though it's not explicit, another feeding miracle. Feed us again. Do it again. After all, Moses fed the Israelites in the desert every day for 40 years. Show us another sign like that and we'll believe you. We really will. We'll follow you. That's the gist of verse 30 in John 6. The problem with these temporary followers of Jesus, and that's what they were, temporary believers, like the parable of the sower, there's one of the the seeds that believes for a while, but then it falls away. That's the way these followers of Jesus are. They were only hungry physically. They lacked spiritual hunger. They were fully aware of of their physical hunger in their bellies. That's why they were interested in Jesus. But their spiritual spiritual starvation never occurred to them. They saw Jesus as a dispenser of physical food, but Jesus came to give spiritual food primarily. So the main thing Jesus wants to do in terms of revealing the need in the Bread of Life discourse, is to expose the spiritual emptiness of these would-be followers. He wants to expose their spiritual neediness. 
In this passage, <coughs> excuse me. In this passage, Jesus is calling you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's calling you to hunger and thirst for righteousness as much as you hunger and thirst for food and drink that perishes. He wants you to understand your utter spiritual emptiness apart from Him. You cannot know how to be satisfied by God until you know the depth of your need for God. You cannot know how to eat and drink of Christ until you know how to truly hunger and thirst for Christ. In verse 41, John continues to lay down truths of the weightiest importance. And these weighty truths follow each other in rapid succession, one after another. He stacks them right on top of each other. The first thing we learn is that Christ's lowly condition is a stumbling block to the natural man. Now when I say the natural man, what do I mean? What does the Bible mean when it talks about the natural man? It means the unspiritual person. The person who is not led by the Spirit of God. To the natural man, Christ's lowly condition is a stumbling block. That's the first main point we're going to consider. Look at verses 41 and 42. The Jews then complained about Him because He said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that He says, I have come down from heaven? Now, if Jesus had been a conquering king with a mighty military in his train and with wealth and honors to bestow on his followers, well, then these hungry, temporary disciples would have been able to receive him and follow him all the way to the end. They would have been able to persevere to the end. But a poor, lowly, humble, suffering Messiah from Nazareth of all places was a stumbling block. Their pride prevented them from believing that God would ever send such a humble Messiah to Israel. Fallen human nature shows its true colors here in verses 41 and 42. And we see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1.23 where Paul says that the crucified Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Wherever Paul went and preached the good news, the Gospel, the cross of Christ, it was either a stumbling block or just sheer foolishness. Unless God did a mighty work in the hearts of those who were hearing Paul preach this good news. The Gospel is humble in nature. And the natural man cannot accept it because of this. The natural man, the unspiritual person, despises the distinctive doctrines of the Gospel because of their lowly character. They're not magnificent on the surface to the natural man. He cannot tolerate 
the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ for His people on the cross. What kind of good news is that? What kind of story is that? He can only mock the atoning work of Christ for the sins of His people. He can only dismiss the good news as primitive, passé. The natural man can approve of the moral teachings of Jesus. He can admire our Lord's example of self-denial, discipline perhaps. But when you speak to Him, the natural man, of the blood of Christ, when you tell Him that Christ was made to be sin for His people so that His people could become the righteousness of God, when you tell Him the good news that Christ became poor so that we could become rich in Him, the natural man responds with the kind of disgust and disdain that you see in verses 41 and 42. Apart from the saving grace of God, the natural man cannot understand or believe spiritual truths. And we have to make sure that even as believers, those who do have the Spirit, that we do not misunderstand the Gospel and mistake it for something that provides health and wealth and prosperity and ease and comfort primarily. The natural man cannot accept the good news. And we as believers must continue to train our hearts to understand that the good news is about the cross. The cross of Christ. And what that means is that as followers of Christ, as believers, as Christians, we are called to take up our cross. The cross is at the center of the Gospel. The cross is what saves us And our cross is how we respond to God's salvation through the cross of Christ. This leads to the second thing that we learn from this passage. The natural man, the unspiritual person, the natural man is unable to repent or believe unless the Father draws him. You see, this this Gospel, the the cross, is so counterintuitive. It's so unnatural to the natural person that God has to draw us, pull us, drag us, turn our will so that we can understand it, accept it, receive it, believe it. The first thing we learned is that Christ's lowly condition is a stumbling block for the natural man. Now we see that the natural man is unable to repent and believe unless the Father draws him. Look at verses 43 and 44. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Unless the Father draws a person By His irresistible grace, that person will never believe in Christ. The natural man is spiritually dead. And he has no power to give himself spiritual life. 
And what we need to remember is that every one of us was conceived a natural man. That includes our covenant children. They don't receive the new birth biologically. We, biologically, we give our children death. Adam's sin. And bondage to sin. We were all conceived in sin. None of us had spiritual life at the moment of conception. The moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, no matter who you are, you had the spiritual vitality of a doornail. You were as dead as a doornail, as my grandma used to say. Spiritually. And you would have stayed dead forever. Separated from God and His life forever. If the Father had not decided to give you spiritual life by drawing you irresistible to Jesus and to His covenant community. The natural man does not need more information, more facts, more reasoning skills to be saved. No, it goes much deeper than that. He needs God to put a new spiritual principle in his soul, in his heart, in his mind. He needs a resurrection from the dead. He needs a new will. The cause of unbelief is a corrupt will that is 180 degrees turned away from God. It cannot turn itself around. It cannot move toward God on its own. The power that the unspiritual person, the natural man lacks, is will power. His will is enslaved to sin. And the Father must draw him out of this slavery by giving him a new will that wants to come to Jesus. God doesn't save us against our will. He changes our will. If we want to change somebody, we have to coerce them. We would have to do it against their will. We have no power over the will, but God does. He is sovereign over our wills. And so He transforms our hearts, our minds, our wills, our affections. So if you know God, if you believe in Jesus, it's only because the Father has transformed your will. He has drawn you to Jesus, His Son, by giving you a will to follow Him. It's not something you have done. It's not something you conjured up from the depths of your inner being. It's the result of the unaided work of God. 100% unaided. Now, this truth is profoundly mysterious, isn't it? It raises some important questions. Mysterious questions that we can't really get to the bottom of. Why doesn't God draw everyone to Jesus? If He can, and He can. Why does God choose to draw some and not others? If the natural person is unable to believe in Jesus unless the Father supernaturally draws him and turns his will, then God perhaps shouldn't find fault with people 
for not believing in Jesus. Should God condemn people to hell for failing to do what they are unable to do from conception on? How do we reconcile the sovereignty of God in saving people and the responsibility of every person to be saved? How do we we bring these things together and understand them? Well, the Apostle Paul actually raises these same questions. So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans 9. Romans 9 is where Paul wrestles with some of these same questions. Turn to Romans 9 and we'll look at verse 14. In the first part of Romans 9, Paul makes it clear that God chooses to save some and not others. He decides to draw some to Jesus and not others. And Paul realizes that this raises some questions. So in verse 14, he asks, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever. Ever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom He wills, and whom He wills, He hardens. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who has resisted God's will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Or as some translations put it, who are you to talk back to God? Will the thing formed say to Him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory. We'll stop there. Now, you'll notice how Paul ultimately leaves a lot of mystery. He raises questions, but he maybe doesn't answer them the way we would like him to answer by getting down to the bottom of it, sorting it all out, and bringing it all together, tying up all the loose ends. He just doesn't do that. And that's because only God knows why He does what He does, and only God understands it. Our job is simply to accept it and to give God the glory for it. Or at least that's where we have to start if we're going to begin to understand it. And that's what Paul does at the end of Romans 11, which is really part of this same large section of Scripture. And so if you're still in Romans 9, you can flip over to Romans 11. The last three verses... 
Paul writes, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Verse 35, or who who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? Verse 36, for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's the final answer. The final answer to these difficult questions is God is God. You are not God. Nor are you God's counselor or advisor. So never find yourself thinking that you know better than God. That your wisdom goes deeper than God's. If you ever find yourself in that place, go back and read Romans 9 and the last few verses in Romans 11. And remind yourself who God is and who you are and who you are not. While much mystery remains in why God draws some and not others and how our responsibility works if it's God who does 100% of the work, there is one thing that, we, that must remain clear in all of this. And it's this. Every person is responsible for his own soul. The inability of the natural man to come to Christ on his own does not make him unaccountable to God. The natural man is not off the hook just because he is unable to come to Christ in his own strength. If a person dies apart from Christ, the Scriptures are clear. It will prove to have been his own fault. His blood will be on his own head. It will not be God's fault. Christ would have saved that person. Sadly, that person would not come to Christ that he might have everlasting life. Why is it important to consider this? Why is it important to realize that God chooses us before we choose Him? Why do we need to know and to believe that unless unless God draws a person to Jesus, that person will never come to Jesus. What's the significance of this doctrine? Well, several things could be said. We'll consider three. First, it humbles us. It humbles us by reminding us who we are and who God is. If you believe in Christ, it isn't because you created within yourself the decisive impulse to come to Christ. It's not that God kind of drew you a part of the way, but then you, unlike so many people, decided to go all the way. Your faith is God's work from start to finish. 100% God's work in you. If the Father had not drawn you all the way, you would still be lost. If the Father had not continued to draw you to Jesus up to this point, you would, have fallen, you would have fallen away at the very moment that He lifted His hand. That He stopped drawing you. The difference between you and a lost person has nothing to do with your abilities and everything to do with God's free, undeserving grace. See, 
when you, when you think about how you can't explain fully and understand fully how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together, that's okay but you, because you also can't explain God's grace toward you. You can't explain why He decided to send His Son and then to draw you to His resurrected Son. In heaven, you will have no one to thank but God. You will not have yourself to thank at all. You did not choose Him. He chose you. This should humble you. Second, this truth fills us with gratitude. Everything you have, including your faith in Jesus, is a gift from God. Your first and most basic response to this great salvation ought to be thankfulness, gratitude. God decided to save you. Be thankful. Third, this truth, this doctrine, gives all the glory to God and not to us. God saved you for His own glory. And all the glory belongs to God. Psalm 115, verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. The glory for God's steadfast love and His faithfulness, His salvation, His mercy toward His people. The glory belongs to Him alone. The next thing we learn in this passage is that the spiritual man is taught by God. So we've, we've considered the natural man. Now we're considering the spiritual man. And the spiritual man is taught by God. He hears God. And he learns from God. Verse 45 says, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. This is an interesting quote that Jesus inserts here. And He gets it from the prophets, He says. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel too. He's echoing Ezekiel as well. I already read the relevant passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah, but I'll read them again. Isaiah 54, 13. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. All your children shall be taught by God, and great shall be the peace of your children. So this, this verse envisions a time when in the new covenant, envisions a new covenant when the people of God shall be taught by the Lord directly in some sense that they've never been taught by, taught by God before. They're going to have some kind of access, immediate access, direct access to God that was not true of all of the saints before. Perhaps just true of the priest or maybe the high priest once a year. Actually, it's going to be, go, go beyond all of that even, we find out when we read the New Testament. And that's, where, that's what Jesus is quoting from. But he says prophets in the plural. 
And so we need to look at Jeremiah 31, which he also echoes. Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That's something new. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. Those of you who are in small groups may remember that this was one of the passages that the book had us to read and and to meditate on. I think it was last week. Maybe it was the week before. Now, in my group, we discussed what it means to know the Lord and to be taught by the Lord and not to need any teacher other than the Lord. When was this prophecy fulfilled? What's it mean? When was it fulfilled? Is this a future thing? Is this already happening? Well, the answer is that it's, yeah, it's already happening. This is a new covenant promise that is being fulfilled right now ever since Jesus came. If you are in Christ, then you know the Lord and you are being taught by Him in a way that the old covenant saints were not taught by Him. In a way that they didn't know the Lord. In fact, the New Testament, the New Covenant, confirms in some sense that you do not need anyone to teach you. Do you remember hearing that in our epistle lesson? If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John 2. Let's consider a couple of the verses that we read in 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 20 and then 27. 1 John 2.20 says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. Interestingly, Holy One, Holy One of Israel is used several times throughout the book of Isaiah. And commentators agree that John is echoing Isaiah and Jeremiah about how in the New Covenant, the people of God will have this direct, special anointing from God, from the Holy One, so that we can know all things, John says. And now skip down to verse 27. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. Now, again, John is intentionally using the language of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, which Jesus is also echoing. And what John is saying is that if you belong to Jesus, if you're in the new covenant in His blood, you've received an anointing that puts you into direct contact with God. You're a priest. You've become a direct learner from God. You hear directly from God by means of His Word and His Spirit. It's not saying that you are going to receive visions or some kind of audible voice. That's not what it's talking about. But it means that you hear God, Jesus says. You learn from God, Jesus says. You know all things because you have His Spirit and because you have His Word. If you've come to Jesus, if the Father has drawn you to His Son, this means that the Lord has written His law on your mind 
and on your heart. And He has put His Spirit in you, the prophets say. So you've been anointed with the Spirit of the Messiah. And this anointing means that you have been given everything you need, as Peter says, for life and godliness through your knowledge, Peter says, of Him who called you. Now, of course, John and Isaiah and Jeremiah are not saying that your knowledge of God happens in a vacuum on a deserted island. You can still benefit from teachers and other believers. It's not contradicting the rest of the Scriptures which tell us to learn from other people to be taught by other Spirit-filled believers, pastors. So we should not interpret these passages, these statements in some kind of absolute sense. The takeaway from this is not that you, that you should stop learning from others or stop coming to church and you only need your Bible and the Holy Spirit. After all, the Bible clearly teaches you that God teaches you and makes Himself known to you in part through the ministry of other Spirit-filled Christians. But what John and Isaiah and Jeremiah are saying is that your relationship with God is something special, something new, something more direct. It's personal. You've received a direct commission from God. You've been anointed by God directly. The Lord's written His law in your heart directly. He has sent His Spirit into your very own heart. Individually. You know Jesus, and Jesus knows you. You're a priest with direct access to the high priest. You are a king who will reign forever with the king of kings. You are a child with a direct line to the Father. You've been taught by God, so you know what you need to know. 1 Peter 2.5 says that each of you is a living stone in God's spiritual house that He's building. You're a holy and royal priest who can offer up spiritual sacrifices, Peter says. Spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You can discern good and evil. You can identify truth and heresy. That's one of the main points that John's getting at in 1 John there. You can serve and minister to the brethren with competence and confidence. You don't have to wait for someone to tell you everything to do. God lives in you. And He has anointed you and authorized you as His holy and royal priest to do the work of ministry in His church. The Protestant Reformation revived the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. Because in the Roman Catholic Church, there was this huge divide between the clergy, the ordained people, and the laymen. And so, Martin Luther and the other reformers came along and said, no, the Bible actually teaches that every believer has access to God. Every believer can go directly to God on behalf of others and pray for them. Every believer is a priest 
who can serve in the temple of God and do ministry there. But if we're not careful, we undo this doctrine by the way we do church. You see, the primary office in the church is not bishops or pastors or elders or deacons. The primary office in the body of Christ is the priesthood of all believers. New covenant priests hear God. That's what Jesus says in that verse. They are taught by God to uphold the truth and to do vital ministry in the body of Christ. See, the the officers, the clergy, the ordained ones are not supposed to be the ones doing the most vital works of ministry in the body of Christ. Certainly not the ones doing the only ministry. If that's how it works, then the church is working unbiblically. The preacher is not the only one who can understand and discern the truth and apply it in situations. The ordained leaders are not the only ones who can do ministry in the body and in the kingdom of God. According to Ephesians 4, the most important works of ministry are done by all the saints that God has anointed. Paul says in Ephesians 4.12 that your ministry to one another is to build each other up until we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So each of you is a little anointed temple who houses the living God. Each of you has God's law written on your heart. Each of you knows God personally. Each of you is anointed to be a priest of God. Each of you hears God and learns from God through His Word and through His Spirit. This means that you are powerful instruments in God's church. You are deadly weapons against the kingdom of darkness. Each of you is a Spirit-empowered minister, which means servant in the body of Christ. That word for ministry in Ephesians 4 that all the saints are supposed to do is service, servanthood. The way God will bring this congregation to maturity in Christ, the way God will bring us to mature manhood, as Paul puts it, is through your work of ministry to one another. The next thing we learn in this passage, and this is the last thing we'll talk about, is that salvation, the salvation of a believer, is a present reality. Jesus says in verse 47, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Notice the present tense verb there. Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life right now. It's a present possession for you. Forgiveness and acceptance with God is not something you have to wait on. It's not pending. You have it now if you believe in Jesus. You have it now if you know Jesus. When a sinner believes on Christ, he is at that very moment justified 
made righteous, accepted by God, made right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of the blood that He shed, because of the wrath that He took for you. There is never any condemnation for the one trusting in Jesus. There is everlasting life beginning now for the one who trusts in Jesus. If you know God, if you hear His voice because you're one of His sheep and you hear the shepherd's voice, if you're taught by Him, if you've been drawn to Jesus by the Father, then you have everlasting life right now and forevermore. Your name is written in the book of life already. Christ has paid for your sins once and for all. Death and hell and the devil cannot take this away from you. They cannot snatch you out of God's hand because they have no power over you. Let's pray. Thank You, God, for Your life-giving Word, Your living and active Word. Cause it to do its work in us. Cause it to cut us up and transform us into followers of Jesus who persevere to the end. Into priests who do the work of God as those who know You. As those who learn from You. As those who walk with You. And we ask this humbly and fervently in Jesus' name. Amen.